Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, things are going to get weird. I'm Jeff Braun. I saw a bunch of movies this week, including what may indeed be the year's best performance from Kate Blanchett. I've also got a cool new show about time travel to tell you about. And I revisited one of the best scary movies, not just of the 90s, but of all time. So he said it's going to get weird. There is an interesting new biopic that debuts this week. It's called Weird, and it's about Weird Al Yankovic. Put it in. I'm tired of people thinking I'm some kind of joke. Your dad and I agreed it would be best if you just stop being who you are and doing the things you love. My whole life, all I wanted. I'm afraid we found your son at a polka party. Just to make up new words to a song that already exists. Oh, well, you should do that then. Who my little hungry one? Hungry one. Open up a package of my banana. Dude, I've got chills. So here's the description from the studio. Explores every facet of Yankovic's life, from his meteoric rise to fame with early hits like Eat It. Oh, and you know what? Hang on a second here. I should actually play that. There we go. Music video for Weird Al's Eat It. And uh, like a surgeon to his his torrid celebrity love affairs and famously depraved lifestyle. So uh, when you look at the Rotten Tomatoes page for this, 92% uh, for the Weird Al Yankovic story. And the, the, the consensus is that it's suitably silly. It spoofs the standard biopic formula with all the good-natured abandon that fans of Weird Al will expect. Great cast in this. Daniel Radcliffe plays Weird Al. Evan Rachel Wood plays Madonna. Jack Black plays Wolfman Jack, radio legend Wolfman Jack. Patton Oswalt is in it. Rain Wilson, Will Forte, Conan O'Brien, and many more. And additionally, the real Weird Al actually appears in the movie as Tony Scotty, who is president of Scotty Brothers Records, as homage to his original role in the Funny or Die skit. And it uh, also provides on-screen Al. He, he, he is the voice of Weird Al's singing voice on camera. And uh, Thomas Lennon appears as an accordion salesman. So I think this looks cool. It's a weird way to watch the movie, though. It's on the Roku channel, which is actually a free service. There's an app for it. So if you've got a smart TV, you can just download the app on your television or you can you know use it on your computer or basically any mobile mobile device so you don't have to pay to watch this movie i have never been tempted to do anything with roku before but i think i'm gonna have to check this out because i love weird al what do you think jeff yeah i was just as soon as you said that i was like oh i'm gonna have to see if my uh, fire stick uh, has the roku uh, app available for it and check it out as well because i also love weird al i remember when uh Eat It came out when I was a kid. My dad said, Jeff, Jeff, you got to come listen to this. Because, uh, you know, Michael Jackson's Beat It was obviously one of the biggest songs of my young life. And it was just fun to listen. It was, it was, I found it so funny. I laughed my butt off. And, uh, you know, 
Weird Al ever since, and every now and then he puts out an album, and it's always awesome. Yeah, I just loved Weird Al when I was growing up, and uh, I still love Weird Al. Every time he he does, like he did that, pulled that stunt a few years ago now, where he released a new music video every day for like seven days, and uh, that was I thought great, uh, great marketing, and they were all good. Well, most of them were good. I think a couple of them were sort of weird, but for the most part, that looked good. So, yeah, I think it looks great and is getting great reviews, and Daniel Radcliffe is apparently amazing in the role, so I'm excited about that. Also, another new movie, another big one that is being released for you to watch at home. I'm looking for a girl. She worked at the match factory. Enola Holmes. She's a detective. Looks like she blow over in the wind. She discovered something that powerful people want to hide. And it's deadly. Sherlock, why are you here? Is it my case or your own? Both. Seems our cases are connected. The game has found its feet again. Extortion, blackmail, corruption. I fear she's tangled with the wrong people. (gasps) Posh girls like you don't belong in this fight. Posh or not, one thing I am good at is fighting. She likes calls in trouble, doesn't she? Don't be so desperate to prove yourself, Enola. But it's important. Enola Holmes 2, starring Millie Bobby Brown as Enola Holmes, the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes, who is played by Henry Cavill. And I can't believe this, but it's been two years since that first one came out. That first Enola Holmes came out on Netflix September 24th, 2020. And I've been meaning to watch it ever since then. I, For some reason, I had it in my head that it came out like six or seven months ago. I did too. When I heard about this, I was like, oh, that's really quick after the last one. And I searched it up and yeah, September, 2020 I was like, oh my God, that's just over two years. That's, that blew my mind. I, I watched, I did watch the first one when it came out. I don't remember anything about it except, uh, I, I did go back and look, uh, at the notes I had made up for our show for the couch potatoes. And I gave it four couch cushions out of five. And it seems I really did like it. Although for whatever reason, I mean, 2020, there's a lot of things about 2020 that uh, uh, just flew out of your brain because it was such a weird time. But uh, I did enjoy the Enola Holmes. I thought it was a, a good mystery of fun for the whole family, including the grownups, which is sometimes a rare thing. So I am looking forward to Enola Holmes, the deuce as well. Try and check it out this week. All right. So those are a couple of options to watch at home. But in the meantime, you went to see a couple of things in theater. Where do you want to start? I'm going to start with uh, what is one of the year's best movies by far, Kate Blanchett, likely going to be a three-time Oscar winner come the spring as she gives a year's best performance in a movie called Tar. We have a problem. I received another weird email. There's no reason to get caught up in any intrigue. I'm worried She's starting to disappear into herself. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. You've got to supplement yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. She's 
Kate Blanchett plays Lydia Tarr in the movie Tarr. She's a world-renowned orchestra conductor gearing up for Mahler's Fifth Symphony with the Berlin Philharmonic. Uh, the movie is written and directed by a guy named Todd Field. He was an actor at one point. If you remember the movie Eyes Wide Shut, he played the pianist Nick Nightingale. But of course, if you've seen the movie Eyes Wide Shut, you'd know that Nick Nightingale was not the most memorable thing about that movie. Um, however, Todd Field never really wanted to be an actor. He quickly turned to directing. His first feature film came out in 2001, a movie called In the Bedroom, starring Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson. And his second came up five years later, 2006, a movie called Little Children, starring Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson. Both those movies received multiple Oscar nominations. Todd Field was nominated for adapted screenplay for writing each of them. But it's been 16 years since we've had a Todd Field movie. He just, uh, honestly, he, he, he tried to get a few movies off the ground and uh, they just sort of fell through. It happens all the time and he just had to a little more worse luck than a lot of other people in that uh, after it took 16 years to get the next movie launched, he's been directing commercials to, you know, pay the bills in the meantime. And so I was very excited to go see this movie Tar this week because I love his other movies. I own them both. And uh, Tar is excellent. It's a psychological drama. It's a character study. I will say it is probably not for everybody. For starters, it's long. It's about two hours, 40 minutes. And the pace is very deliberate and I think deliberately slow at the beginning. It does pick up steam as it goes through, though. There are some very long scenes, including the opening scene, which is uh, Lydia Tarr at this Q&A event. She's waxing poetic about classical music and her career. And I bet that scene is 10 minutes long. It's meant to give us an idea of what she's about, how she sees herself. And while it's effective, it's not the most exciting way to start a movie. It's just her and another guy sitting in two chairs on a stage talking. However... I will say that even before that scene, we get something even more boring, which is the credits, the end credits. Todd Field loads them up at the front of the movie. So the movie starts with three or four minutes of just black screen with names going by. Everyone who worked on the film, again, there's a point to it. You know, movie directors get the credit, but it takes a whole team. Just like Lydia gets the credit for being this amazing conductor, but obviously she wouldn't be anything without the orchestra. It, it was weird though. And like I said, it was kind of boring to watch. You know, I mean, Hollywood started stuffing the credits at the end of movies decades ago for a reason. It was helpful though, uh, to sort of recalibrate my expectations, you know, so it was clear right away that the movie was not going to be typical Hollywood fare. So you got to go in not expecting that. The movie follows Lydia as she gets set for a book launch, as she prepares for this big upcoming concert, which will be recorded and be the big finale of a series of concerts that she's done in Berlin over the past eight years. It's literally the high point of her professional life. But throughout the movie, we slowly learn more about her as it goes along. And it turns out she might not be as great a person as she believes, or as certainly not as great as she believes, and maybe not as much as the public believes either. She's emotionally manipulative to those who she has power over in the music world, whether it be, you know, her mentees or students at Juilliard, where she's a guest teacher, the orchestra in Berlin, various people on her staff, and even her wife, who is also in the Berlin Orchestra. We see a few examples of some of her troublesome behavior, but a lot of the time we're only given inferences and Ultimately, though, there are some allegations and the movie suddenly feels very modern as someone states outright in the movie, you know, the truth doesn't really even matter once there are allegations. That's usually enough. And indeed, the movie makes a point because we never really get a full picture of what those allegations are, or what really happened. We just sort of see the fallout, what it does to Lydia, both inside emotionally and to her life and her struggle to contain it. And uh, crucially, this film is built with this ambiguity. We are left to decide what kind of a person she is. She's obviously a great talent. She has a lot of charming aspects about her personality. But again, she's also not great a lot of the time. But I mean, 
none of us are perfect, right? So I, I don't. I hope I'm not making it sound like this movie is just something that rages against cancel culture. It's not really that. Although I think everyone's opinion will vary based on how they feel about that sort of thing. It really is a good movie to to you know have a discussion about afterwards because so much is open to interpretation. What is not open to interpretation, though, is that Kate Blanchett is phenomenal in this. She's in nearly every frame of the movie. There are a lot of long takes. That Juilliard scene I mentioned is probably 10 minutes long, and I think it's almost all in one take. Most of it's in one take. And the ambiguity that the movie strives for, a lot of it is built on how she created the character. It's uh, really the performance of a lifetime for an actress who already was a Hall of Famer, already has two Oscars. Uh, it's weird to say of someone of her caliber who's been around for more than 20 years, but I think we've been underestimating Kate Blanchett. Uh, she won those two Oscars, by the way, for the movies The Aviator and Blue Jasmine. And again, I bet good money that she'll be the favorite to win again this year. Uh, the other performances in the movie, all terrific. There are a lot of European actors in it I, I was not familiar with. The craftsmanship, the Todd Field and his crew bring is just, it's elegant and precise and very specific. They found some very interesting locations for sets. The detail is rich. You just cannot look away even for a moment. Overall, quite an accomplishment. I can't recommend it enough. Four and a half couch cushions out of five for Tar. That sounds awesome. Okay. I'm, I'm really, I was, this wasn't even on my radar, but when you talk about this great performance and that extended scene, I think I might have to check this out. And in a moment, Jeff's going to tell you whether or not two of the biggest movie stars on planet Earth can save Ticket to Paradise. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. Tar wasn't the only movie I saw in the theaters this past week. I saw another one. It's been out for a couple of weeks, but I finally bought my ticket to paradise. I love you. Be safe. Good choices. Always. See you again. Never. Hopefully not that soon. Two exes. Check your email. Our daughter's going to marry a guy she just met millions of miles from home. Whatever this is, it's your fault. One wedding. Let's talk game plan. We still the rings. I was about to say that. But I said it, so it's my idea. And lots of baggage. Isn't he amazing? Only if he drops her. Ticket to paradise. <laughs> Can't believe I got bit by a dolphin. He said pressure. He said Rated PG-13. Ticket to Paradise stars Julia Roberts and George Clooney, and if that's not enough to get you in the doors, what is? It's been a while since we've seen either of them in a major motion picture, and it's too bad because they're a lot of fun together. Uh, you know, to say they have great chemistry is the understatement of the year. They're great friends in real life, so that helps as well. The rom-com, this one in particular, pits them viciously against each other, though, at least at the start. They play a divorced couple who are forced to reunite for their daughter's wedding. And in fact, they team up in an effort to stop that wedding. Their doctor, played by Caitlin Dever, has just graduated from law school. She's decided to spend the summer in Bali with a friend, uh, you know, just to let off a little steam after all those grueling years in college and before she starts her legal career. But once she gets there, she falls in love with a young seaweed farmer. And just a few weeks later, they're engaged. Mom and dad, of course, not at all impressed with that development. So they head to Bali for the wedding and then plot and scheme to get it called off shenanigans ensue and they spend most of the movie sniping at each other but hey wouldn't you know what maybe spending all that time together will bring them closer together both Clooney and Roberts are capable of tougher dramatic roles of course we've seen them plenty of time in those types of things but the effortless charm 
you know, is their bread and butter. And I think obviously it's the only reason anyone has gone to see this movie the last couple of weeks. And people have been going to see it. It's made $125 million around the world on a $60 million budget. So that definitely counts as a hit, even if it doesn't, you know, reach superhero movie numbers. Um, they're not reinventing the, reinventing the wheel at all. The story is quite predictable, but it is a joy to watch. It's oftentimes quite funny. It's a throwback for those of us who spent, you know, the last 30 years watching these two. And the Bali setting is just unbelievably gorgeous. Um, and I suspect maybe that had a lot to do with uh, how this movie came to be. Uh, if you're George Clooney and they back up a truck full of money and say, would you like to spend a couple of months on the beach making a movie with Julia Roberts? Well, how could you say no to that? It's a light, feel-good film, and it's just what the doctor ordered. Not, there's really not much else to say about it. It's not an instant classic or anything, I don't think. But, you know, the movie's what you would expect. It delivers on its promise, and it's just a fun escape. So I'll give Ticket to Paradise three and a half couch cushions out of five, Brett. Also, just looking at what else is out this week, and there's a movie that is uh, out. It's expanding its release. It came out limited last week, but it's expanding this week. It's called Armageddon Time, uh, 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, from acclaimed filmmaker James Gray. This is a deeply personal coming-of-age story about the strength of family and the generational pursuit of the American dream. The film features an all-star cast, including Anthony Hopkins, Anne Hathaway, and Jeremy Strong. Jessica Chastain is in this as well. So, yeah, just wanted to put that on your radar. Uh, with a, It's got a powerful cast, getting some decent reviews. Might be worth a watch. And then, of course, next week we have the big one, Wakanda Forever, the Black Panther sequel from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Up next, I will tell you which classic scary movie I revisited this past week and about this great new time travel show that airs on Showcase. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes, and we love Stuff about time travel. For example, we've talked in this show in recent weeks about the new Quantum Leap reboot that's on NBC, which I'm really enjoying and I'm quite happy to be doing so because I figured it would be crap. Its ratings are crap, though, but it did get a full season order up from 12 episodes to 18. That surprised me because I had read rumblings that Quantum Leap might get the axe. Back to the Future, of course, one of our favorite movies. It's one of everyone's favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Terminator, Avengers Endgame, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Hot Tub Time Machine. We could go on and on and on and listing time travel movies. Or what about time loop movies and shows? Groundhog Day, all-time classic. Edge of Tomorrow, one of the coolest action films ever. Happy Death Day, Boss Level. You know, stories about getting stuck, reliving the same day over and over are also fantastic and they resonate. These stories all resonate so well because who wouldn't want to go back and change something, get another shot at something you screwed up? But then conversely, the time loop ones, those are kind of scary stories because if you're in that loop and you can't break out, would, would you be able to hold on to your sanity? I don't know. So there's a new series on Showcase that combines both time travel and time loops. It's called The Lazarus Project. Freaks you out at first, doesn't it? I need to know what's going on. We're a top secret organization dedicated to preventing and undoing mass extinction events. Oh, and we can make time go backwards. Welcome to the Lazarus Project, George. So the show comes from us from across the pond, from Sky Television. It's about a guy named George who develops apps, and his life is turned upside down when he wakes up one day. Several months in the past, July 1st, 
And then a few months after that, it happens again. He goes back to July 1st. And eventually, he's recruited by a secret organization called the Lazarus Project. They have the ability to turn the clock back, but only for extreme circumstances to prevent the world from ending. So in other words, they can't reset time, even for major tragedies like 9-11. It basically has to be a mass extinction event. And for George, he is selected because he's one of the few people who actually realizes that this is happening. Most of most people, the clock rolls back and we all just go back to that point like nothing happened. But he knows it's happened. He's remembered what happened in the meantime. So right there, that's pretty cool. And then for George, things become... Something happens that make things a lot more complicated and a lot more personal for him. It's an eight-episode season. It airs Thursday nights on Showcase. Gets replayed overnight, Thursdays into Fridays. And you can watch it on demand through your PVR if you missed the first couple. Or on Amazon Prime via Stack TV if you don't have cable. Like, it's a great package of channels if you've cut your cable, but you still want access to lots of great stuff that is on TV. That's right. There is still a lot of good stuff on television. It's not just on streaming. So as we enter this weekend, three episodes will have aired. I've only watched the first episode so far. But I loved it. Just what a fascinating concept. Like, I've never seen a time loop story where you're not repeating the same day, but potentially the same several months. So once you know you're in this loop, like in George's case, once he realizes what's going on, imagine what that would be like trying to live your life knowing that it might all just get reset and you just have to wait for it to happen, like playing the game Perfection. You know you know, the, you know eventually it's going to burst, and those pieces are going to come flying out at around the 60-second mark, but sometimes it's 57, sometimes it's 58. So you never really know, and then when it does, boom, throws you off every time. So that's what this is like for him. And then once you know why it's happening, as is the case for George, imagine what it's like to know that you have access to a time machine but you can't use it for your own personal reasons. What sort of dilemma would that create for you? It's just a terrific sci-fi thriller, and as sciency as it may sound, it is not. It's not convoluted at all. Like, there's one point where George says, how, how does it work? And he's told, do you have a degree in quantum physics? No? Well, then there's no point in telling you. You won't get it anyway. And that's that. There's a machine. It resets time. It works. That's all we know. That's all we need to know. Who cares how it works? Who cares where it came from? Just enjoy the ride. So that's, once again, it's called The Lazarus Project. It airs Thursday nights on Showcase, and you can get caught up on demand. Sound like something, uh, would you, what would you prefer? To be in a time loop that's just same day over and over or one where oh. it's several months? That's hard. I would, if you could, if you knew that it was going to be three months and then at the end of the third month it goes back, I think I would pick that. But if you don't know when it's coming or if it'll come again, and you know what I mean? Like, like in Groundhog Day, he knew it was going to be this, after a few times, he knew, oh, it's just going to be the same day over and over again. And you can, you know, you can adjust to that, but if you can't adjust, if you don't know what's actually going to happen, that would be that would hurt your brain a lot more than the Groundhog Day thing. Um, all the other Groundhog Day thing, if you're in a big city, that would be easier to go through Groundhog Day because you could just find more things to do. He was stuck in a small town. That was the worst part of that, I think. Oh, yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, if you're in a big city, you got all kinds of stuff to do and explore, and 
you could keep yourself occupied forever. Like I always say that, you know, it doesn't matter what city you're in, but if you're in a big city, you could spend your entire life going to a different restaurant probably every day and still not have enough time to do it. So in his yeah. case, he could, yeah, okay, wow. You just kind There's of, that, you blew my mind there, the, Jeff. Sorry. <laughs> and then on the science front, it was just, we were talking about how they don't explain it. It reminds, just, it, that's just the genius of Back to the Future where he's just like, what's that? That's the flux capacitor. That's what makes time travel possible. And then they just move on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. Flux capacitor. Must be, flux must capacitor. be, it must make sense. Yeah. It must make sense, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So if, if you want to watch a cool time travel show, check out the Lazarus Project again, Thursday nights and showcase. And I just wanted to quickly touch on this because I've been talking about some of the scary movies that I've been watching, either revisiting or ones that I had never seen before, like I had never seen John Carpenter's The Thing. Well, this week I decided to revisit this. Hello. Hello. Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Scream from 1996. If you've never seen it, it's a slasher movie that is kind of like satirizing and lampooning the slasher and horror genre overall. And it has a lot of fun making fun of the whole formula while itself being an excellent, super fun movie. It's just a fun movie with a great mystery. You know, who done it? Who's behind the mask? And when the reveal happens, even though I knew who it was, it, it was still a thrill. I just had so much fun watching this movie and I forgot how good it is and and just how well it holds up. And that, and I watched it, by the way, on Crave. And then I thought, well, since I watched Scream 1, I guess I gotta watch Scream 2. Hello? Hello, Sydney. Remember me? The way I see it, someone's out to make a sequel. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. <laughs> Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. And I enjoyed Scream 2 as much as I had in many, many years. I thought maybe I wouldn't care for it as much because it was the sequel, but then I remembered, oh yeah, I really <laughs> I really liked the, the sequel when it came out in 1997 and was surprised by that because the sequels are often not great. But then Scream 3 in 2000. That's where my dilemma is now because I want to watch the new Scream. I never did watch the one that came out earlier this year. Didn't get to the theater in time to see it. And I would like to watch that, but I sort of wondered, do I need to re-watch Scream 3 and Scream 4 from 2011 before the new one? And I kind of, even though I didn't really enjoy those movies as much, Scream 3, I, I seem to remember being almost like just outright bad, and Scream 4 was okay, uh, just sort of meh, it was just there, uh, but I really want to watch this new one, so I think I might watch Scream 3 is available on Crave, looks like Scream 4 is available on Prime and Paramount+, Plus, and then Scream, the new one, or Scream 5, is only available on Paramount+, Plus. so I might have to investigate 
the uh, you know free trial situation if they've got a free trial where I can sign up for that and then bail out because the last thing I need is another <laughs> is another streaming service and I just don't know if there's enough content on that one to justify keeping that. But you like the I know you don't like the scary movies, but you you're down with Scream, yeah. right? I've seen the first three, yeah, and I did really like them. And the first one, you know, was just this all sudden mega hit out of nowhere kind of thing. I didn't see it in theater, but I did watch it later that year, whenever it came on to VHS, I imagine. And then Scream 2, some friends and I saw in theater, and it was dumb of us, at least as far as I was concerned, because we went to the movies, it was the winter, we went to the movies, and then as soon as the movie ended, we drove out into the woods and stayed at a cabin for the weekend with no one else anywhere near around us, and I didn't sleep a wink the whole week and just terrified that the ghost face guy was going to get me. It's like uh, most horror movies involve teens in the cabin in the woods. What are we doing? Yeah, that's <laughs> good job. Good job. Sorry I lost uh, some sleep that weekend. And in a moment, I I am actually really curious to know the circumstances that led to Jeff Braun watching this ridiculous movie. He, when he texted me and said, you know, I watched this movie this past week, and I thought, what? So I'm going to find out the answer, and you're going to find out the answer. Next, you are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and I went back to the Butlerverse this week, although <laughs> unintentionally this time, I saw the movie Dracula 2000. This Christmas, only one movie will get your adrenaline pumping, your heart racing, and keep you... Who the hell was that? Dracula, he's real. On the edge of your seat. This is it real. Wes Craven presents Dracula 2000, rated R. Okay, so I've been going through Gerard Butler's filmography, which we call the Butlerverse. Uh, first, he started as a joke, kind of to rip on some of his bad movies. But I've come to love the man over the past couple of years. He's got an undeniable screen presence, even when he's chewing the scenery. And he's not a bad actor. He's just ended up in some bad movies, quite a few bad movies. I saw this one, though, because uh, my favorite podcast that I listen to is called How Did This Get Made? They did an episode on it. They make fun of bad movies, and this was their Halloween week entry. So I was like, oh, all right, guess I'm going back to the Butlerverse. And Gerard Butler plays Dracula in Dracula 2000. He's almost unrecognizable from the man we know today, though. Uh, as the movie suggests, this movie came out in the year 2000, long before anyone had really heard of Butler. And back when he was young and very pretty, now he's kind of old and grizzled, but he's a, a young, pretty man in this movie. And the makers of the movie were clearly more invested in the stuff more than the scares, so they just kind of wanted a sexy Dracula. The movie's very dumb. Uh, Jennifer Esposito and Omar Epps play these criminals who try to rob her rich boss. He's played by Christopher Plummer, and unbeknownst to everyone, he's the legendary Van Helsing, vampire hunter. What they, st uh, they, they steal is a, a coffin that's in his vault. Why would you steal a coffin? Uh, it contains the thousands of years old desiccated corpse of Dracula, and they unwittingly bring him back to life in modern times, and he unleashes hell, although mostly he just walks around New Orleans, uh, biting pretty girls, turning them into vampires. He does this with Jerry Ryan and Vitamin C. Remember her? She sang that graduation song. He doesn't have a lot of lines. He mostly just has a seductive look on his face, and his prey can't help themselves. They run into his arms, and he vampires them. Plummer teams up with his assistant, played by Johnny Lee Miller, to fight the vampires and try to stop Dracula. There's a lot of really, really bad turn-of-the-millennium CGI. Remember, back in the day, 
the good movies like Titanic and Jurassic Park had good CGI, but once everyone started doing it, it was mostly just terrible 20 years ago and that's what we have here it keeps any of the scary or gory scenes from being scary or gory um little of the movie makes much sense but it was actually easy enough to watch it was kind of fun uh, not really enough to recommend though it's very forgettable glad i got to cross it off my list even though i never even knew the movie existed until a week ago but uh there you go two couch cushions out of five for dracula 2000 have you ever seen it brett no i have not seen that but i'm curious now is that on prime I honestly can't remember where I saw it. Okay. Um, let me just pull up that uh, Just Watch app here. Uh, oh, yeah. It looks like it's on Prime. Okay. So oh, maybe I will check that out. I think I may have seen this, but it's probably one of those movies that I just instantly forgot because it wasn't particularly good. But I am very curious now. I, I, I got to admit, I, la I had a good laugh watching the trailer. Seeing Gerard Butler try to do a Dracula <laughs> voice was just ridiculous. I don't know and what the they were thinking. Teeth. Yeah, the fake teeth uh, kind of muffles everyone's voice because they put the fangs in and then all of a sudden no one can talk properly. It's like, well, why wouldn't you just re-record their voices later? Yeah. Okay, so the Butlerverse, another trip back to the Butlerverse. And I'm just going to very quickly tell you about something I watched this week on Disney+. Plus. As we've discussed before, Disney+, Plus has been a conveyor belt of content for both Marvel and Star Wars. And on the Star Wars front, they continue to pump out new stuff and or airs on Wednesdays, only three episodes left in season one, and it has been excellent so far. But this past week on October 26th, they released a new animated series called Tales of the Jedi. It's just a six-episode season, six shorts, so they're all under 15 minutes. Three of them focus on the young Jedi, Ahsoka Tano, and three of them focus on Count Dooku. When we meet Dooku in the movies, we learn that he's a former Jedi who eventually turns to the dark side to become the apprentice of Darth Sidious, who of course would later become the Emperor. And all the stories that are shown here are different parts of their lives, like when Ahsoka was a baby and it's learned she's a Jedi. Another one of hers shows her going through rigorous training with her master, who was Anakin Skywalker, and then we see her in the fallout of Order 66 and how she eventually joins the Rebellion. Dooku, meanwhile, we get episodes with him from when he was a Jedi and his Padawan learner was Qui-Gon Jinn. And his episodes increasingly show his disdain for the Jedi, for their tactics, for their their refusal to fight for what's right, not just keep the peace. Like, he has a genuine desire to do good, to defend the weak, and that's what ultimately leads him down a darker path. So it was cool to get some insight into his character. So again, six episodes. They're super short. You can plow through them in 90 minutes. Tales of the Jedi. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.